With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, look, I noticed that, like, I skip a week and we go from, like, the preface to the second <laughs> half of the book. Like, that's what? a lot last week. Made progress. One of the academy, I skipped over to the. Well, <laughs> I won't say we actually got there. We're just moving. We're just Discussed moving. Discussed things. I, I figured since we'd missed so much, let's just start fresh on the second part of the book and move along. Absolutely. Is this the sort of book we could be on here for months? Or I mean, think we did the first time we did Leaf by Niggle a couple years ago. It, it was like six or seven weeks that we were on Leaf by Niggle. Did we, we really do it that long? Because we just read it straight. We just read the book. And so we would stop every, you know, few you paragraphs. Read yeah, out we, loud. yeah, out loud. Yeah. I mean, we read it during the week too, but I think it was just so so rich. We right. just kept reading. It was fresh for everybody, and so we just, yeah. I just so we just read it out, and then we'd stop and go, all right, let's discuss this, and then so it took us forever <coughs> to read those seventy some pages, um, and we did several things like that. Um, Weight of Glory, we did like that. Um, it was it's kind of fun just to Weight just. Of glories. That way everybody's on the same page, everybody knows exactly what's being said, and then ideas kind of pop from there, but... Mm -hmm. All right, well, this is, um, it's, been a, it's been a while since we've been here. We're back for God in the Cave on G.K. Chesterton's um, Everlasting Man. There it is, there it is, got to me. This is VFF on Monday. What is today? The second, third, fourth, second, second May second. Almost Star Wars Day, and uh, so we're going to uh, just start with God in the Cave and see how far we get today. And over the next couple of weeks, try to finish up Everlasting Man. Although I don't know that we will. It's everlasting, but um, we will. We will give it a try. Um, yeah, interestingly enough, Caitlin's not here. I don't want to do with that. <laughs> I'm just putting her on the podcast. Just, just putting her on blast. Shame. <laughs> if Shame. you're listening. Wait, <laughs> my girl. The, the audience wants to know that she's not here. That's what it is. No, so... Um, who did uh, so? Who, who's read the, the very beginning of this God in the Cave? Who's who's I to today? But I was working on this stuff at okay. the same time, so I read this chapter, but I haven't read most of the stuff leading up to it. Okay. I read the first like two to three chapters in the first part. So I read it before, but I didn't mark it up, so I don't have any clue. You don't need any. I feel like I'm, I'm behind. Running blind now. Oh, yeah, we're all running blind here. Okay. Let's see where we go. Yeah. We're good at winging it, though. All right, so the part one begins with the man in the cave. 
which he flips around and calls Caveman, right? That's the man the cave, Caveman. Part two starts out with, on the man called Christ, chapter one, God in the cave. Okay? So, he brought something up to my mind that I'd actually kind of forgotten about uh, over the course of the years. And uh, that's why it's good to go back to these books and, and see what's already been said about them and see what the prevailing ideas were in, in those times. But that the manger and the place where Jesus was born wasn't a, a man-made structure, according to his readings. It was actually a cave. Um, and so Jesus himself was a parallel to the caveman. The first, the first recorded man in history, the first thing we know about man is he was in a cave. The first thing we know about the God-man is that he was in a cave. It's a nice parallel. Um, but I'll tell you, the, first, the, the thing that jumps out the most to me is I feel ashamed for Gen X millennials and Gen Y, I feel ashamed when I read somebody like Chesterton, the depth of reading that man has done is just, I mean, and Lewis and all these guys, the depth of reading that they have done to be able to have these thoughts and just be able to just seamlessly just pull things through, I'm just going, we are a bunch of slackers. I mean, really, what have we been wasting our time on? Three's Company? Um, you know, uh, Hunger Games. I mean, what? what I'm just kidding. <laughs> I was thinking of the movies more than I was. I was thinking of the TV, not the books. But like, where where we? But he spent his time thinking and reading, and you can tell because he he finds clues and he finds he finds information that we've forgotten, and he he lays it out in a way very Sherlockian, in a way this goes. All this lines up. <coughs> Man in the cave, God in the cave, there's a parallel. First man Adam, second man Adam, parallel. You know, you go, oh my gosh, this guy's brilliant. It's just, uh, so what do you guys think about the idea of, of the birth taking place in a cave rather than in a wooden structure manger like they did on The Chosen? They didn't do a wooden structure. I'm just kidding. I'm just throwing shade at everybody right now. <laughs> It's fantastic. I've been recommending it, and highly recommending it. So, yeah. Eventually, I'll get there. Do Do you guys? So, with your theology up to this point, do you, Do you agree or disagree? Have you thought about that? There are no footnotes to where he gets, you know, from from where he draws this from necessarily. He, I mean, he draws from the history of, well. Um, herders and things like that <clears throat> would have used caves more than they would have used structures because they were transient and so you wouldn't you wouldn't build structures if you were being transient you would look for the most the most economical thing would be a cave to, to put your life there were caves there so. there were caves yeah I mean, logically it makes sense that it was a cave rather than than a, a wooden structure or a, a temporary structure so I don't know I just I thought that was interesting I wonder if you guys how that meshes with your theology, if it messes with it at all, if it does. I've heard that before. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know that there's any inscription that's like, yes, it was a cave. Mm -hmm. um, but I, yeah, I've heard that idea before. And 
I've never, you know, heard someone emphasize it as much as he emphasized it in this chapter. Um, I think she was. But I think the point still stands of like, you know, this radical Christian idea of like the divine unveiling itself in a place that's like, you know, I like when he used kind of the stage metaphor where he's just like, like Jesus revealed himself like underneath the stage, <laughs> like he like wasn't even yeah. on the scene, like. But then he also ties it to like, and yet, you know, towards the end of the chapter, he starts talking about just like, I don't know, just how all these extremes meet in the person of Christ, where it's like, at the same time, he's like at this place in the cave where, you know, the outcasts and the homeless go, but at the same time, it's the place where like the treasure is hidden and like the king is always searching for it because like, it's just hidden away. And... Yeah, I just thought it was just a nice job kind of tying in all those metaphors, kind of like you were talking about before. It's just like really brilliant and well read. You can kind of just like weave all these things together. It's the glory of God to conceal things and the glory of kings to seek them out. It's very interesting that there were three kings who did seek out this this mystery. Right? You know, the Magi, they, they sought this out. They they figured it out. And they they saw the they saw the game within the game, right? Or the or the play within the play. Like you said, he was he was under the stage. There's a whole other play going on. There's a whole other level going on than what you see on the surface. That's the iceberg. You know, like we're the iceberg. This thing going on, and it's hidden in it, and it's secret, and it's the thing. It's the hobbit running around with the ring. It's the thing that, that no one's looking for, and it's the thing that changes, um, it changes the world. And I, just, I love that um, Jordan Peterson says that the, I, mean, I probably said this probably before, so forgive me. But I just really spurred this thought on. The golden snitch in, 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 in the Harry Potter stories, the shape of that, he said he's only seen one other time, and it was in research he did in some textbook that nobody knows about, because no one's checked it out of the library for you know, <laughs> decades. And he said it, it was his ancient symbol of wisdom. This, this shape of the snitch was the ancient symbol of wisdom. He said, I don't know where, I don't know where J.K. Rowling found it, but she did. And he says, but the interesting thing is, in Quidditch, that there's a game within the game. And if you get the snitch, if you get wisdom, you win the whole game. The rest of the game doesn't even matter. It's, it's inconsequential at that point. I mean, theoretically, it's inconsequential at that point. And so it's the game within the game. So Christ comes, and he is the, he is, he is the golden snitch, and the thing that is so elusive, hidden away. And you go in a place where no one would think to look for it. And only those who were really astute and humble actually found it. And I think that's that's just brilliant the way that it's brilliant the way that God unveiled himself in the cave. I just I just that just really resonates with me how he out of the earth, you know what I'm saying? The son of man, out of, out of the earth, coming out of the cave. Um, much like if you consider the first man, uh, the first man, or the first recorded man. And there's this, I, I love the parallel, I can't get over the parallels he draws. It's, it's so nice how he, he just seamlessly puts that together. <clears throat> and I don't know if it's true, but I like it. I like the story, I like the narrative that it draws. And it seems very plausible. Um, let's see here, because uh, there was something, 
I had some stuff, but I must not have worked. I think I uh, highlighted on my other device, so I don't have it with me. All right. Um, I like this one bit that okay. I read. I, it's, I'm reading over it now in the print version, but I was listening to it earlier, and it caught my ear then. Um, fairly early on in the chapter, one page was a digital copy. Um, the sort of modern critic of whom I speak is generally much impressed with the importance of education in life and the importance of psychology in education. That sort of man is never tired of telling us that first impressions fix character by the law of causation, and he will become quite nervous if a child's visual sense is poisoned by the wrong colors on a gollywog, or the nervous system for prematurely shaken by a cacophonous rattle. Yet he will think us very narrow-minded if we say this is exactly why there really is a difference between being brought up as a Christian and being brought up as a Jew or a Muslim or an atheist. Mm. The difference is that every Catholic child has learned from pictures, and even every Protestant child from stories, this incredible combination of contrasted ideas as one of the very first impressions on his mind. It is not merely a theological difference, it is a psychological difference, which cannot last any theologies. It really is, as that sort of scientist loves to say about anything, incurable. Mm. And he goes on about how any agnostic or atheist whose childhood is known as real Christmas is ever afterwards, whether he likes it or not, an association to mind between two ideas that most of mankind must regard as remote from each other. The idea of a baby and the idea of unknown strength that sustains the stars. Baby and the strength. Yes, and he, uh, he says over here, omnipotence and <coughs> impotence, or divinity and empathy, to do definitely make a story epigram, which million repetitions cannot turn into a platitude. It is not unreasonable to call it unique. Bethlehem is emphatically a place where extremes meet. I mean, it's just... Never really... I, I can't remember reading Chesterton for a long time, and I... I read Tremendous Trifles and What's Wrong with the World. So good. This, this is a tour de force. This is just fantastic. So let's, so let's pull on that. One thing you said there that was very interesting. The Catholics have pictures. Mm -hmm. Protestants have stories. Mm -hmm. Catholicism is huge into iconography, right? Mm -hmm. Stations of the cross, mm -hmm. stained glass windows. Most of the early church people were illiterate in that. And so they, because the Bible was written in, in, uh, in Latin. Crucifix. And what? Crucifix. Yeah, the crucifix. All these images, right? Mm -hmm. It's incurable once you get those images in your mind. Because, I mean, even Jung says an idea has you more than you have the idea. Depends on which idea you want to have you, in that sense. And so, um, but it's, it's interesting because Protestants, yes, there's not as much iconography in Protestantism. It is more stories. It's parables. It's, 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 it's narrative. Um, but it's those stories that are so impactful. And the visual... Because I remember a few weeks ago we were talking about symbolism, right? When you get into a when you get into a war, your philosophy will not sustain you, but a symbol will. A flag flying, right? Because that flag represents the philosophy that you don't have time to think about. It's 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 a shortcut to this is the this is the higher moral aim. And so when you see the cross, you're like, 
everything else is falling apart, aim for that, right? So if we aim for that as Christians and we see that cross, and so we, we know we're an invisible force, right? We know that there's this, there's this thing that's incalculable. Is it the story of a baby being born, or is it the... Is it the, the what, what does he say there at the end? The difference between the baby and the and the um, and the idea of unknown strength that sustains the stars. Yes. So what what is your vision of of, of of these things will determine your behavior, right? So I, I think that we do see when you're when you are raised with an idea that um, let's say let's say you're raised in atheism, where there is no objective meaning to things. That's going to shape the man that you become. That's, that's abolition of man. That's the whole story behind abolition of man. That's the whole meaning behind it. Be careful how you learn. It will shape who you will become. Right? You won't have that sustainable thing that holds the stars together. And so when your life starts falling apart, you start looking for anything to sustain you. And the problem is, that your feet are planted firmly in midair. You don't have any objective reality to, to cling to. Whereas the, the, the young Catholic can go back into his memory bank and he can see the, the iconography, he can see the images. Or the Protestant young man or woman can go back to the stories because that story that they, that, that they heard has sustained them, they hear that same story over here and that, that mythology draws them along. This is why Lewis says we need to make them good pagans first before we make them good Christians. Because the pagan mythologies lead us to Christ, and that's actually what that's actually what Chesterton says here too. If you got, if you read the part of Long, he says mythologies were no longer needed because Christ came. Just as the Old Testament is a schoolmaster for the New Testament, it is the thing that points us. Greek mythology points us to Christ more than it points us to Zeus. So Lewis says, I'd rather they be good pagans than, than, than make them good pagans first so they understand the mythology. So when they see the real thing, they're like, oh, yeah, I know what that is. That is the fruition of all this mythology behind it. And there's no need for mythologies now because we have the true myth. Very fabulous. Which is, which is where we are now. So. Well done. Here we are. So. Well done. So Miriam, that was very, very... Uh, very good passage to bring up. And there is some some other things here. Uh, let's see. <clears throat> I've got some things. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? 
I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. I want to get to, uh, let me see. I want to get to. <clears throat> Go ahead, yeah, go ahead. Uh, I would like to hear your guys' thoughts on this passage. Um, yeah, there's like so much stuff in this chapter, <laughs> and there's a lot of it that I don't understand. <laughs> so I'd love to go through some of it. But this one section in particular, um, this is on page 188, at least in this copy, but I think we okay. all have different copies. So <laughs> um, he says, It is profoundly true to say that after that moment, there could be no slaves. There could be and were people bearing that legal title until the church was strong enough to weed them out. But there could be no more of the pagan repose and mere advantage to the state of keeping it a servile state. Individuals became important in a sense in which no instruments can be important. A man could not be a means to an end at any rate to any at any rate to any other man's end. And so there, I feel like there's a bunch of stuff in this mm-hmm. chapter that. I think I think he gets it so well that he kind of touches on things. He does. And thinks it's going to be clear to the people who are reading it all the, the depth beneath what he's saying and why it means that. <laughs> but I don't... So there's things that touch... He touches on that resonate with me. But then I'm like, can you like explain that a little bit more? Because <laughs> like, like slavery... <laughs> Have you ever world. seen airplanes come yeah, in and like, do the touch and go? They land for a second and take right back off? Yeah. It comes in and... I'm off again. And so the idea of like, because I've heard this idea that like, it was in, you know, that Christ kind of solidified like the, like Jordan Peterson would talk about like kind of like the divine spark in the individual, mm-hmm. like the the coming to the fruition of like man being made in the image of God, um, and just that like, you know, up until the point of Christ, like even the nation of Israel, it was like connection with God was always like this corporate thing and I think still is in the form of the church mm. but there was kind of this new touch to it of like the individual like mm-hmm. you alone <clears throat> in your bedroom like are able to like have this sort of communion with God and like be filled with the Holy Spirit and it's a corporate thing but it's like also this individual thing and so there's that tension there but yeah I, I would just love to hear your guys thoughts on that passage and just what what he means when he's saying that, like, the, the advent of Christ made individuals become important, and just what that means in Christianity in general, I guess. So, I think, uh, well, I, so if anybody's want to jump in first, go ahead. I'm going to give, give some space there. Testament. How are you identified? How are people identified in, in, the, in the Old Testament? We are the children of Israel. We're the children of Abraham. Abraham's our father. Corporate. We're the Philistines, the Assyrians. Um, when Achan committed the sin, it, everyone suffered. 
right? And so there was this corporatist, uh, corporatism. So God made man in his own image. When God arrives in the cave, he is in the image of man. And I, and I think what I think what he's trying to say is humanity became important enough for God to show himself in that form. And since God shows himself in that form, that form is now elevated and will be elevated. And so since that form, so since God, we were made in his image, so we are a reflection of him, and he actually comes in our likeness just, he comes just as we are. Emmanuel, God with us, walking <clears throat> the same path. And suddenly salvation is not attached to, salvation is not attached to corporate. You don't have to be a part of the children of Israel to be saved. Salvation is attached to motivation. It's attached to your personal confession. Each individual. And so suddenly, um, some of the some of the behaviors we had prior to this. So, um, we, so the Bible actually says God winked at ignorance in the Old Testament. So, you know, some of this, and you go, what, what does that mean? Some of the, there wasn't the open revelation of, of, of God. The Holy Spirit wasn't, the veil wasn't rent. God wasn't ubiquitous everywhere. The Spirit rested on a few people here and there. When the veil was rent, and now we have personal relationship between the Father and us, not just between the high priest once a year, um, it changes the dynamic of how we see ourselves. And through man seeing Christ elevate in the human form, that humanity could be elevated, begin to think about self, begin to think about himself. And so the church, by pushing this idea that, we, that the individual has worth because Christ says, everyone has enough worth for me to die for. I'll die for one person. I'll go and save the 99. I'll leave the 99 and go and save the one. Suddenly, you have all this, uh, this individual, this one person. Um, he's going out and he's saving the untouchables. He's, he's going to the, the, he said, go to the highways and the byways and get, and get the maim, the halt, and the lame. Suddenly, everybody has a place at my table. Each individual does. And so as he goes out and he begins to spread this message, what you begin to see is, as Christianity flows out through Europe and flows into sciences and things, you actually start to get enlightenment. The enlightenment came out of thousands of years of Catholicism being, being pushed and the ideas of, of self being generated. That's where we get, actually, that's where we get Freud and these guys coming out of. It came out of Christian thought. It came out of the idea that man has importance as an individual. And I think he's touching on, on some of that stuff in, in, in that. Yeah, earlier in that paragraph that you, you just read your thing, it says, it would be vain to attempt to say anything adequate or anything new about the change, which this conception of a deity, born like an outcast, or even an outlaw, had upon a whole conception of law and its duties to the poor and outcast. Because up until this time, you know, King was born in the palace, King was worried about the king. Yep. The subjects were beneath his thought. Here's our king, our savior. Ah, there you born go. Born in a cave, born under everybody. Yet he's our king. That dichotomy, that total flipping upside down mm. of what was understood, is very radical. 
Uh, it, it is extremely radical that love would be the ethic that would win, right? That mercy would be, grace would be the thing. Like, no, 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 no. Eye for an eye. Like, no, 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 no. Not an eye for an eye. It's, it's, it's pray for your enemy. What? How radical of an idea was, was love God and love your neighbor? And Paul's like, yeah, pretty, yeah. Love, love is a supreme ethic. And you go, what? We don't realize how radical that was for them to say that back then. It was extremely radical. And today we take that for granted because we live in the open revelation of Jesus. We live in an open revelation of the Holy Spirit. And we live in thousands of years of Christian thought behind us. And we're like, well, everybody thought like this. But up until Christ came, this wasn't common to think like this. Um, yeah, so. Yeah, this is uh, another passage a bit later on. Um, it is not only that the horse hoofs of Herod, of Herod might in that sense have passed like thunder over the sunken head of Christ. It is also that there is in that image a true idea of an outpost, a piercing mm. through the rock, and an entrance into an enemy, enemy territory. There is in this buried divinity an idea of undermining the world, of shaking the towers and palaces from below. Even as Herod, the great king, felt that earthquake under him and swayed with his swaying palace, that is perhaps the mightiest of the mysteries of the cave. It is already apparent that, that though men are said to have looked for hell under the earth, it is rather the case. It is the case in this. Whoa! In this case, it is rather heaven that is under the earth. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chabacasino.com welcome to the family vgw group no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus and there follows in this story the idea of the people of heaven that is the paradox of the position that henceforth the highest thing can only work from below. No man can ascend except he that descends, even the son of man that is in heaven. In John, um, I think that's John 5. No man, no man can ascend except he that descended, even the son of man which is in heaven. And that's, that's kind of what he's pulling on there in that. Now, if we, if we want, so let's, let's go to, um, if you guys haven't heard of Kevin Heiser, um, there's a book called The Unseen Realm. I'd recommend it. Um, because it ties into everything that we're talking about here. So, um, and I may have, I, we, we've mentioned this before. Some of you guys don't know this as well, but we've mentioned this before. Uh, a little bit ago, I got on a big Nephilim kick. Um, because reading Genesis 6, um, I was listening to it out loud, like being read to me. And you know, sometimes when you're reading things hit you a little differently than when you're, when you're actually reading it yourself. And it said, the sons of God took the daughters of men and had children with them and they became great warriors and men of renown. And I went... Sounds like Zeus and and Apollo and Pan and all those. Wait, what? 
the Titans, that sounds completely like mythology. Heroes of old, Titans, and, you know, <clears throat> children of, of gods and, 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 and humanity. And I go, oh my gosh, what if, what if Zeus, Hermes, Aphrodite, all these, these gods we have, because if you've never read uh, Ovid's Metamorphosis, if you've ever read that, it's, it was a Latin poet who actually poked fun at the Greek gods. He actually, it was, it was a satirical thing. He just, because he said, these gods have divine powers, but they act like petulant children. Like, they, they have all this great power, but they're, they're even more craven to, their, to the, the desires of humanity and, and the vices and stuff. But yet they have, no one can stop them. They are at will, just take whoever they want. Like petulant children. And, I, and so when I had that in the back of my mind, I've always had that Ovid thing twirling back there. And, and I go, oh, the sons of God came and took the daughters of men and created great. I was like, oh my gosh. What if, like I say, Zeus and all these people, what if these were fallen angels? The Nephilim, they were real people. They were not people, they were real beings. And the stories were real, but they became mythologized over time. And we changed the names of them to... Roman or Greek or Norse or whatever, they had the same attributes, they had the same hierarchies and things. But in mythologizing, you change the name so that it can be passed down. But these events actually happen. That would make the Greek myths true as events that happened that had been mythologized over time. Okay, you're like, Wes, where are you going with this? This sounds crazy. Oh, I like this. All right. So what this means is. When you have Baal and Molech and you have all these gods, have you ever wondered about why God said to kill the Amalekites and the Philistines and wipe them out and not leave a man, woman, or child living? It doesn't sound like the God we know, right? When the divine council fell and they took daughters of men and created heroes of them, that's an illegitimate being on the earth that was not created by God for God's purpose. Those are illegitimate. So in fact, they're not actually quote-unquote human. So we could, we could postulate that God having, wiping out this tribe of people, not human people. Wait, did I just walk into the Nephilim? You did. Yeah. <laughs> you see that? <laughs> yeah. Wait, did I just want you to know? Never ending. Okay. But here's, but so, I mean, I'm always open to a new idea. But so, but it won't see, be new for a long <laughs> But he, so it gets, it gets really good. It gets really good. And by the way, this is a pretty fun. This, he's not alone. There's a little. Once you listen to it, it's going to be very plausible. <laughs> okay. So the Philistines, so the Nephilim. Um, divine counsel and things like that. So what, the, what actually is, is talked about is that demons are orphaned spirits, are orphaned uh, illegitimate beings that are on the earth that were orphaned, that, that were created by the Nephilim and, and, and the humans. And they, they actually, because they're not human and they're not divine, they're actually orphaned. They don't have a spot. And so they're actually, that's, what we, it's, that's part of demonology that you can get into. Okay. Now here's why this is important. Because these, these influences from the divine council actually had authority over certain areas of the earth. 
the prince of the power of the air, right? And so when Israel would go out and they would face these, these other nations, they were influenced by other spiritual forces. So back then it wasn't just like we're like today, like, oh, there's a bad dude out there. No, there was actually literal demonic forces that were, that were pushing these armies. It was a spiritual warfare. Daniel prayed for 21 days for, uh, and the angel came and said, I would have come here sooner, but I had to fight my way through a bunch of uh, demons to get here. And you go, what? And, uh, and Gabriel fought Lucifer over the, uh, the body of Moses. So when you see that, right? So there's, this, there, there's a spiritual warfare going on. When Jesus comes, like you read right there, he comes underneath all that. And suddenly there's a reverberation because the true king of kings has just arrived. The, the one ring, ring to rule them all has just arrived. And when it arrives, Lucifer's like, oh, wait. Here's the guy. This is, this is the thing that can do it. And so he looks at Jesus and says, I will give you all these nations if you'll bow down and worship me. So think about that. If he didn't have that authority, Jesus would have said, well, they're not yours anyway. So your offer is, 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 doesn't mean anything to me. But it was a legitimate offer because he was the prince of the power of the air. He actually had territories that were under his influence and under his control. When Jesus comes in and the veil is rent, suddenly all that authority and power goes away once he's crucified and becomes king of king of lords. He owns it all now. And so I think that's what he's pulling at there in, in this, that the coming of Christ and him coming underneath of all this means, like David said, whether I make my bed in heaven or make it in hell, there you are. Suddenly, there is no place for the enemy to hide because Jesus, once, he, once that veil is rent, there is no place. He is the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's the Lord of hosts now. And the Bible actually says, if the prince of this world had known, they would not have crucified the Lord Jesus because when Lucifer did that, he's like, okay, I can't defeat him. I, I can't. He won't bow down and worship me. I'm going to take him out. Death is the one thing that humans can suffer. He came in this limited form. I'm going to take him out. And God's like, yeah, that's what I came for. And when he does that, he, it's like the, the white witch, right? She calls Aslan, you're a fool. You're a fool. Not only will I get Edmund after this, I'm getting you too. You died for nothing, you fool. Kills him. And then Aslan's like, oh, she didn't know the deep magic. Don't quote the deep magic to me. Yeah, don't quote the deep magic to me. You, you, don't, you, don't, you don't know it. And so Jesus is like, Lucifer, if you had known, you would not have crucified me. But in doing so, it was his complete undoing. And now he's the prince of the power of nothing. He has no power and authority in the earth because the veil is rent and the power and the Holy Spirit is ubiquitous and, and throughout and open to all open to the individual, not just to certain regions based on your uh, religious um, leanings. Wes has to keep reminding, I'm going through the Old Testament right now, Wes has to keep reminding me that it's not the same. I'm like, God was terrible. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere 
and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. These things are terrible to happen in the Old Testament. He's like, remember, it's not, things have changed. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, okay, I'll, I'll turn the fire hose off. But I, I, I needed to set that backdrop from Genesis all the way through because I think once you, once you see the Old Testament through the lens of literal spiritual warfare and that there were literal Nephilim and, and divine council beings coming down and causing havoc and, and creating progeny. Now, this, I think this is very interesting, so I'll see what you guys think. Ezekiel says that Jesus, or that, that Lucifer was in the stones of fire, with, that he walked among the stones of fire and on the mountain of God. So, divine counsel, God said, let's make man our own image. God, Jesus was open to divine counsel. Hey, here's the plan. Here's what we're going to do. So immediately, when the divine counsel falls, and Jesus said, I beheld Satan fall as lightning to the earth. As soon as they fall, they start creating a hybrid race of people. Now, that's interesting. Because... When Jesus comes and he's resurrected, he becomes a hybrid creature. He's the God-man, right? The hypostatic union, right? He's, he is God and he's, he's divine, right? Well, that's the same thing that the Nephilim were creating, divine and human, right? But it was fallen divinity, limited divinity and humanity created a hybrid species. And fallen, <coughs> and fallen man. And fallen man, yeah. So you have you have man, you have divinity in man, but they're both fallen, fallen, fallen. fallen. So the hypostatic union is all God, all man. He's the first God man. You, he is the firstborn among many brethren that you will be co-heirs with Christ Jesus. We are going to go from human (coughs) to humanity and divinity. We're going to be a hybrid people, a new nation of people, a peculiar, a peculiar people, a holy people brought into God. So it would seem to me that the, that the divine council said, we're going to create our own hybrid people to, to combat God's hybrid people. And that's what the Old Testament was. was, it was see, the enemy thought it was, a, it was a territorial battle. And if I have all the lands, if I have all the goods, if I have all the resources, then I will control the world. Jesus comes under the world, into the deep earth, and undoes everything as he emerges from the cave. And it's just brilliant battle plan. How it, and, it, and he's like, oh, my kingdom is not of what? It's, it's, it's not of this earth. Like, you've missed it. You've completely missed it, guys. Like, I'm doing something totally, this, this, this flesh doesn't even matter. Like, go ahead and take it. I'll build it in three days. I'll build it back in three days. It's done. You know, and then he goes, it is finished. And suddenly, all that power, all that spiritual warfare, now all we have to do is 
Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Not so in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there was, lit, there was serious demonic influence and power going on. Um, yeah, so. That's, uh, that's my, my spiel. I'll get, be back in just one second. Yes, talk some amongst yourselves. <laughs> <laughs> so Kevin Heiser spent 15 years writing the Unseen Realm, and he lays out in great academic detail the little snippet that I gave you. He lays it out in like 300 pages of just footnote after footnote after footnote. And it's just, it's a lens once that you see through it, nothing else makes sense. Like this completely opens up the Old and New Testament in a way that I'm going, yeah, that's, this is what I've always thought. I didn't have the vocabulary for it. Do you remember when we were we met with that couple who went to Oxford to study at Oxford, and you brought this up to that guy, and he's like, "Oh yeah, I've been studying this for a while." Oh it's yeah. Like, it's it's in the academic world for sure. It's not like a. It sounds a little loop de loo when you first talk about it, and I'm like, "Oh." It, it's you not. Know, you're not gonna hear Charles so Stanley talk about it, <laughs> but or you know, um, uh, Philip Yancey's probably not gonna, gonna gonna talk about this, but. I don't know. Maybe. Um, pretty interesting though but yeah when you see it that it is a it is a spiritual warfare and if it wasn't if it wasn't a spiritual warfare then his coming and his death and his resurrection wouldn't have meant anything unless there was a real power to overcome it had to be a legitimate threat what kind of rights did they have over warfare yeah. oh. <laughs> I, I would have to take it I'm, I'm going to bow out that was good she <laughs> got <laughs> she asked what kind of rides they had at the warfare. Did they have any good fried dough? Just I mean, sheer disappointment. <laughs> she, she, I, I, I had no comeback. That's, that's very rare. I was just, I'm stunned. To give that a minute. Let it stew. That's like dad just falling. Yeah, I mean. I'm here for it. <laughs> you just have to have a punchline to it, though. What, what kind of rides do that? And that'll be the next phase. We'll figure that out. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, wrestle with it. Throw it back at me. Like, I wish you're an idiot. I, I think my biggest. Uh, I like ideas that feel like they explain a lot. I have a harder time adopting them when they feel speculative or esoteric. <coughs> so that's my initial take. 
when you look at the the ubiquitous nature of mythology, it's hard to say that's just all superstition. Especially if we look and the first thing a man did was draw a, a perspectival drawing in a cave and he was an artist. He wasn't a savage idiot. So if beliefs, if we take the artist from the very beginning that he's talking about and then we create narratival stories with mythology in them, they're not just going to make those up and say, oh, it rains, so there must be a god of thunder. You know, there's thunder in the sky. There had to be thinking into it. There had to be behaviors going into it. So why are all these mythologies out there, and why are they all similar? What are they pointing towards? And when you look at that, and then you look at Genesis 6, to me it seems to be, it seems to be an historical event, not necessarily an esoteric event. I'm looking at this and going, this is literal, not, not, not in a sense. I think you could actually almost prove this to be literal, in a sense of if you look at mythologies as deriving from a historical event. And that's, what I, that's, that's where I'm coming from. And if it is from a historical event, it changes the lens through which you see almost the, the spiritual nature of the Bible actually grows and the Bible to me becomes less esoteric and becomes more literal in the spiritual sense. Like there's literal spirits. It's not just... I had a bad day, had a temptation. No, no, there is actual little demons, and here's the origination of the demons. And I go, that's, that makes sense. That makes sense to me. And so, um, yeah, that's, that's where I'm coming from and on it. But sure. um, it does sound wild and speculative. Um, and here, I'll tell you why this is funny. One of the questions that we used to, we used to uh, razz people with at, at Aka at, at Oxford Center Christian Apologetics, was during the practice Q&As, we would go, so yeah, what about the Nephilim? What do you think about the Nephilim? And that'd be the one that would just, everybody like, not done, stop. You know, it's like, stop. What do you, so in Matthew, when the people raised from the dead, what are, what are your thoughts on that? And they're like, you know, those are the kind of questions that no one usually answers. And so I've been thinking about that since that. It's like, well, why don't, why don't we have an answer? Why don't we have a good answer for that question? And then it kind of, that kind of all went uh, and went down those uh, a wormhole, if you will, and that's what I've been able to bring out of the wormhole. Uh, as uh, Charlotte Holmes says, I, I dirty my fluffy white tail, uh, and so um, anyway, yeah. So well, it, how does this connect to Chesterton? What did I miss? Well, it's talking about heaven came from under the earth because Jesus was born in the cave and. It sent reverberations through all the kingdoms, okay. even Herod's kingdom. And uh, so I felt the need to go back and to Genesis and lay it out that way. Dancing around, around that's something I consider all the time. Yeah. So, uh, was there anything else in that passage you wanted to wrestle with? Um. <laughs> You're almost scared to bring it up. You don't know where he's going to go. <laughs> <laughs> yes. no, I, I love hearing Wes's ideas. I don't. I know. <laughs> well, you know, after listening to Wes talk about this for you know for, over the years, yeah, I, I, I can imagine. <laughs> I, I'm like, one day I was I was sitting there and I was like, you know, after listening to all the things you've been talking about with Nephilim, I'm like, I've been thinking about like Marvel and all the superheroes. 
like, what is some of, like, which is basically you're talking about like Greek gods and all these things like God of Thunder, Norse Norse. mythology. (laughs) You start to think, oh, some of these characters may have, there may have been some validity to them. Like there may have been some god who could call down lightning and there may have been some, like, or an adaptation of them because like Wes was saying, these myths come from something. It's not yeah, we can create things, but a lot of our stuff that we create comes from something valid and real. But because our brains can't wrap our, we can't wrap our minds around those things because it's not something that's normal in our culture or society. It takes a little deep brain digging because, but I was like, oh my gosh, what if there are like, there is like a, maybe not Captain America because he was kind of creative, but like, you've got your God of Thunder, who are your other characters? Oh, uh, Wonder Woman. The Wonder Woman. I'm like, some of these people may have been real. And if you look at, if you go into studying about the angels, there are there are seraphims, there are archangels, there are cherubims, there are angels with different statues and different abilities. Yeah, wasn't well, that, is it Joshua? Mm-hmm. You have the angel coming down, right? Is it Joshua? I'm not sure. Right now. Yeah. I was like, I mean, maybe. But but there. So the 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 cherubims are angels that uh, they're lesser in stature. Of course, you have your archangels, they're warrior angels, and then you have your seraphims, they're angels of worship and praise and things like that. So you have these different levels of angels. Well, if you look at mythology, you have you have different levels of gods, right? You have Pan, can't do much but play the flute, right? He has some powers. Cupid, right? Well, that's where we get our idea of cherubims from is Cupid, god of love. You know, he could shoot arrows. He couldn't call down thunder, but he had some influence. You know, and you look at it and you go, well, what a third of the angels fell. <clears throat> what third? Were there some archangels? Were there some seraphims? Were there some cherubims that, that fell? If they did, they would come to the earth with all different types of powers, different abilities, different divine attributes that could that could account for the the hierarchy of of those things. So, um, yeah. There's an interesting. Uh, there's a good line in here that fits with all you're saying. It says mythology had many sins, but it had not been wrong in being as carnal as the incarnation. Mm. And see, Lewis says, here's how Lewis came to Christ. He loved the story of Boulder. Are you familiar with, with the Greek, uh, with the Norse god Boulder? So, uh, the gods created, uh, the gods all, all gave Boulder this power that he couldn't be killed. And then, they would, uh, the only thing that could hurt him, they, somebody one time said something like, Willow would hurt him. Like, the Willow's the only thing that can kill him. Just being, you know, they were drunk and they were having these things, so they put this power on Boulder. And they're, they, they're get drunk and they throw axes at him and stuff, and he couldn't die. One of the, one of the people there, it might even have been Loki or one was of those. Was it It was Willow. Created an arrow made of Willow and then shot it at him and pierced him through and he died. Well, the gods resurrected him. And Lewis said, I accept the resurrection of Boulder 
but I wouldn't accept the resurrection of Christ. Why? I was so, but it's because we, we understand that there is an actual resurrection, but it was my, my, uh, my watchful dragon, because when Jesus came up, my watchful dragon annihilated it. When Boulder came up, I was readily accepted the resurrection. And he said, that's why he said, good pagans, you know, into Christianity, because mythologies point us into, into those archetypes and those things that, that come through there. So, um, yeah, and you can tell he gets a lot of his mythological understanding from, uh, from Chesterton. Chesterton goes deep into the myths. Uh, I wanted everybody's um, thoughts on. It was mistletoe. Was it mistletoe? Oh, okay, that was Willow. Mistletoe. There it was. Um, let's see. Okay. Uh, da, 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 da. See, I'm almost there. Uh, let's see. Um, but the reincarnation is not really a mystical idea. It is not really a transcendental, a, a transcendental idea, or in that sense, a religious idea. Mysticism conceives something transcending experience. Religion seeks glimpses of a better good or a worse evil than experience can give. Reincarnation need only extend experiences in the sense of repeating them. It is no more transcendental for a man to remember what he did in Babylon before he was born than to remember what he did in Brixton before he had a knock on his head. His successive lives need not be any more human, many more than human lives under what limitations burdens human life. What do you think about that? Reincarnation is not a religious idea or transcendental idea. I just thought he, he, he laid it out very clearly. I mean, it's, it's hard to come back from that. Is that in this uh, section, or does that go further? It's page 206 on my book. It's, it's the man in the cave. Oh, it is still in there? Yeah. I think. Uh, let's see. I'll go back. Yeah. Uh, maybe it's the next chapter after. I was just listening, so I don't know. It did, it, when I'm listening to it, it doesn't give me... The chapters, right? No, I feel you. Uh, oh no, I'm sorry. It is. Oh, that's way too far. That's <coughs> deep. That's demons and philosophers. That's in the. That's in the second one. I mean, the first one. That's in the first one. All right. Um, what I was really trying to get to. Still, still an interesting concept. Huh. It doesn't really solve anything. It's, it's just another idea that's just extending. All it is doing is extending the problem into the yes. unverifiable past and making it, ooh, that solved a thing. But it doesn't really solve anything. Because it? it would, what? You'd have to ask the question so where did it begin? It's an infinite regress, right? 
where's it going to end? It's, it's a circle, right? It has no beginning, has no ending. It's just you're, you're stuck in the loop. And so it's not religious or transcendent because you're going to come right back in the same human life and the same human existence, or you might come back in the cattle, or you might come back in a bug, or you might come back in the... But you're not going to escape this life. It's human. It's humanity. So you're going to come right back in the human life. So you don't transcend into some divinity or into some afterlife. Just a will. You just come back as a human. Or not. Or, or, or in some kind of, hum, some kind of um, current existence. Let's say it's called that. Uh, uh, yeah, so that wasn't exactly what I was... There's one part in here that I have recorded on my phone, but... Um, where he talks about Buddhism, but it is, um, I'll have to get it for next time because I can't find it. Again, I was reading it on my phone when we were out in Colorado and I made all my notes on my phone and they're not on this, so. Multi-device problem. Yes, I am. <laughs> First world problems, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Terrible. I don't know which device it's on. Terrible. But I think he does, a, he does such a good job, as always, of... I mean, he's exhaustive, but he leaves, leaves a little quarter for any, any other possibility. I mean, he's almost exhaust the possibility that there's anything other than, than Christianity. Um, I don't think he does it in a mean way. I mean, sometimes I wonder if Lewis calling atheism a boy's philosophy isn't a little, isn't a little tough sometimes. But um, he was an atheist, and I think Lewis is poking at himself more than he is poking at others. He usually is. He's yeah. pretty self-deprecating, so it's probably a um, good point. But I don't see anything in Chesterton necessarily where he pokes in this where he poked at other people and said like, well, you know, Buddha was an idiot. He didn't say anything like that. He was just like, uh, reincarnation? Like, like Joseph, it's not an answer. It's kicking the can down the road. Um, it's like, it's like uh, Richard Dawkins saying that transpermia is, is the reason for existence, where, where we were seated by aliens on Earth. That was the, as a possibility. The aliens seated us. And you go, well, who created the aliens? Like, you, you, just, you, moved, you moved the problem just one. Just, just one. So, well, the aliens were seated. Well, who seated those? And so it just starts to begin the Nephilim. The Nephilim. Mary, that was them. Yes. <laughs> Slam dunk. There's Steph Curry right there. <laughs> Game winning shot. So, um, yeah, we'll continue on uh, reading. Let's see. The next one is so we got in the cave. The riddle, the riddles of the gospel, then the strangest story in the world, witnesses of the heretics, escape from paganism, the five deaths of faith, and the summary of the book, conclusion of the book. There's also a prehistoric man in there. Um, in something that's, that's very interesting, I say that as, it's very interesting to me. <laughs> Put that qualifier in that. What do you guys think about the first 11 books of Genesis? Have you guys thought about breaking it up to the first 11 books of Genesis? The top of my head? 
this is the stories of the stories of the books of Genesis. So you have creation. You mean are they are they common culture allegorical mythos? Yeah, what, what stories, yeah, myth, mythos or stories or historical? Have you thought about that? We, we had that question asked to us at, in uh, in my Alice McGrath class, and um, uh, it caused some people to melt down. It caused some people to seriously, seriously just kind of freak out. And it was the first time I'm sure in their in their Christian faith anyone had posed a question to them about Genesis one not being historical. You go, what's it's. It is historical. You go, <coughs> really? Who was there when God said? Who, who was there to copy that and go, oh, yeah, so God, hold on, what was that again, God? Yeah, you said. Like, no, no one was there. The man wasn't even created until, I don't know, like the 16th verse or something, you know? Moses read him. There are a couple options. One, one is that uh, Genesis 1 was not written until the 9th century. Um, when they were in Babylonian captivity, and it was the priests who were writing that they had they had they had been living in polytheism for so long, and they knew that their God Yahweh Jehovah uh, Elohim was unlike any other god. And so, if you go back to any any Near East tradition, any creation story in the world, Genesis one is the most unique book ever written. Because every other book starts out with either Marduk overcoming Tiamat or some kind of some kind of hero overcoming chaos. It starts what, with dualism. It starts with dualism. It starts with something being overthrown. Genesis says, God said it happened. It was good. There's no chaos. There's no struggle. It's just boom, 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 boom. Genesis 2, we start with chaos. Right? Things didn't grow because it had not rained. Wait, 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 wait. We have, we have negatives, right? It didn't. Uh, Genesis 1, there was no it didn't. God said it did. Genesis 2, it hadn't because this hadn't <coughs> happened yet. You go, well, that's interesting. Genesis 1, God commands man to multiply. Or, no, sorry, God says, he said to them, be fruitful and multiply, which is, that's a very nice sentiment. Hey, be fruitful and multiply. It was just... There's a period at the end of it. There's no exclamation point, right? Genesis 2, man says, God commanded us to multiply. That's a difference in tone, really, right? One's a divine image, one's a divine view, and one's an epistemic view. One's an edemic view, right? So Genesis 1 was written from the divine ontic view. And Genesis 2, through Revelation 21, is written from the edemic view. It's completely unique in any other kind of literature. Um, and so the first 11 books of the Bible actually are called mytho-historical because we don't know about those stories. And so one conclusion is that much like the mythologizing of uh, what I consider the Nephilim stories into Greek mythology, we don't know if Abraham's name necessarily was Abraham. But that's the name that was given or Adam's. Adam, that might, have been a, that might not have been his name. That might have been the name given to the person who this happened to. You know? And so, 
these stories happen, and they happen continuously as, as, a, as an archetypal happening, and they were written down and passed down. Because until the flood, they were all alive. Adam was alive, uh, Methuselah was alive, everybody was alive until the flood. And then they, they died and the flood happened and all that. So all these stories were passed down, and that's where we got them. And didn't just have to be passed down, you go ask them. Yeah, it's first first person. Yeah, you go still I would, Oh, Adam. Adam. He's eight hundred and fifty years old. He lives over there. You go you can go talk He's to him. Probably still not didn't have dementia. Yeah. And so um, it's interesting to think about the first eleven chapters. Like now, once you get past chapter eleven, it becomes it becomes historical. It becomes actual events that happen in real time. Um, Is that getting up to? And so, but I think that's interesting because I think that lends a lot of credence and a lot of weight to the mythologies that arose as well because it, it seems to be a little similar mythos in there. Um, and that's why I lean a little, uh, I lean a little more into mythology than, than most. So. Annenberg really, uh, really helped me with all that. Annenberg, he's theologian, and uh, he was saying that the stories came about so they could explain their existence. Yeah. That's how it comes. A lot of those. Uh, Religions are very similar. We're just trying to explain you know, how they came about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's it. Yeah. At the same time, I, you know, I know in the church the argument about uh, whether that actually happened, the Genesis and all that. Uh, you know, God said this and that. It's not worth getting an argument about. Mm -hmm. Because uh, there are some people who will, oh, yes, he did say that. <laughs> I mean, they truly, not as gospel, but they believe that that is exactly what happened. Yeah, not as gospel. Yeah. <laughs> Just like I've had people, especially this one lady, I said that Jesus was a Jew, and she, this lady goes, uh uh. Well, what was he then? He was a Christian. He was no. <laughs> He's a Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Lutheran, they, right? They, yeah. Those yeah. type of people, she would just, not, you can't get them from that. Yeah. Yeah, she would hold truck with people saying that Jesus was a Christian. That's great. Yeah, we were doing Max and Taylor's study when that happened. <laughs> it's kind of yeah, those are all good things to. Uh, they're, they're not worth. Uh, I'll say, they're not worth falling out over, mm -hmm. but they are worth probing. Sure. Oh yeah. Uh, that's that's what I, I like to wrestling with those. And so, if you guys come back in two weeks, you're like, all right, Wes, that mythology thing is crap. Here's why. I'm gonna love that because um, I get I get, a, I get a wrestle with it because when somebody challenged me with the first thing of going, who was there to record Genesis one? I went, oh my gosh. I, I have lived my entire life and not thought who 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 was there to write that down. Yeah, who was the first sniper? Yeah, like who was a sniper? Like, and I was like, oh my. Okay, I, I missed something. It was an, it was a vital clue. Uh, I was very Watson up to that point, and then somebody was Sherlock to me right there and said, hey, this is 
this is a vital clue you missed. And I was like, oh my gosh, that makes so much more sense now. Um, but we had people that were so hardcore in their, in their beliefs when somebody said, you know that um, eternal punishment might not be it. The church fathers and the church doesn't have any orthodoxy in heaven or hell. Uh, again, people melted down because you're, you're, you're poking at their foundations and they're like, no, it has to be this because I believe this is how it is. Um, and they're like, well, the problem is, is they're just, there's not the evidence for it. That it's the only way there's evidence for others. And suddenly, um, yeah, you got to see some people just argue. And the thing was, when you quit arguing, they kept arguing at you. Like, they would follow you out of the room and just argue. Like, no, that. You're like, oh, my God. You it's really got a hold of you. So. Um, well, so I just come to dig in. The, how somebody explained the, the, uh, the flood, knowing the flood and all that, that was, you know, written, you know, as basically, that was their world. I mean, it didn't necessarily mean it covered the whole earth, but it covered the the earth as where they existed. And, and uh, otherwise, you know, how do you explain that there's so many different uh, flood stories in various uh, religions? Yeah. The Epic, the Epic of Gilgamesh, actually, I think is one of the oldest stories written. Um, and it's a flood version of the flood. Um, and yeah, so a lot of these stories have similarities. Um, and what's inter here's what's interesting about the Old Testament. I had a college professor tell me this, and I, it really stuck with me. A lot of people will criticize the Old Testament and say, well, the timelines sometimes don't match up, right? Some of the timelines don't match up. Therefore, the Old Testament's it's inconsequential. And he goes, those same people will look to other religions at their text as, as evidence of what happened in history. Except that linear time did not exist until the Hebrews started writing stuff down. It was all cyclical time. So the, the civilizations that they're trying to point to and say, these people were smarter than, these people actually had more historical facts than the, the uh, Old Testament people are using the dating system created by the Hebrews to prove the Hebrews got it wrong. And he's like, that, that can't work. That's it's contradicting yourself. The other civilizations are all cyclical. The Hebrews had linear time. The only civilization to really use linear time up to that point. And that's where we kind of we kind of get some of that linear stuff going on. So um, yeah, it's interesting to see how important. And Peterson says that the Old Testament is not only beneficial, but it's a necessary book. Which the, he said the archetypal stories in the Old Testament are necessary for the survival of humanity. You just go, that is a powerful statement from a clinical psychologist who is not a Christian. He's not even, not even a Jew. He's, he's just a clinical psychologist. He's a Canadian. He's a Canadian who's... What, what I, th this, is, this is what I love about a guy like Lewis and, and Peterson and Chesson, these guys. His book, Maps of Meaning, took him 15 years to write. That's a long time to write a book. That means he thought this thing through. He thought every possible way. He ripped everything apart. And, and, and so when he says something, 
he's thought about it. And you, when he says it, you get that because it has that heavy weight to it. When Chesterton says something, you're like, this dude's thought about it. Like, like Cody says, the touch and goes he does, what else is, like, what else has he got? Right. If, he, if he just touched down and he made this illusion to something and you're like, oh, that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother island, that's a whole nother, you know, galaxy of, of possibilities. I'd love to have known a guy like him. It just, it would have been absolutely brilliant to have a conversation with. Because um, he was also quite funny. Chesterton was a, was a barrel of glass. And actually Lewis was too. They were both jovial. Both jovial. I don't think Peterson's a barrel of glass. I think he's at least a little more, a little more serious. But, all right guys. Um, I think we'll, we'll uh, call it for today unless you guys want to talk about mythology and Nephilim a little longer. Uh, hopefully we've got some good stuff to to think about, uh, push back on, and I didn't expect to like the book this much, honestly. Uh, I hate to say it, I, I don't like Father Brown that much. And I love mysteries, just couldn't get into Father Brown. Um, and so maybe I'll give him another chance now that I've, I've actually started to like Chesterton again. But uh, come next week with your favorite, um, um, your favorite, excerpts and uh, some of your thoughts on those excerpts and then we'll wrestle that hopefully we'll have some some more people here as well uh, especially Caitlin <laughs> it's all out of love it's out of love well Chris isn't show by them more anymore either so these um, slackers Anyway, this has been uh, VFF, May 2nd, 2022. God in the cave. Further up? Further in. Further in. Further in.